if you pick the right customer, you're going to keep the churn down. If the unit economics makes sense, you're going to be profitable. And if you've built a business with high barriers to entry, you're going to have longevity. And I think those three pieces are kind of what are core to the SaaS companies that are enduring versus some of them that are more ephemeral. This is SaaS Scale, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Shraki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to be with Sai Donak, VP and Head of Product at Latch. Welcome to the conversation, Sai. Thank you, Armand, and thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you guys do. Absolutely. So I hail from London, England, and I've been in the startup world for some time. Started a company out of Puro College back in 2012, 2013. That was a company called Caribou which was a video calling application for remote families, which obviously was very useful in the last couple of years since the pandemic started. And during that time, I sort of cut my teeth in product management, running a company, founding a company. And while the timing wasn't quite right at that time, I learned a lot. And so I had a soft landing from Caribou. I sold my stake to a co-founder. I then joined the BBC to kind of learn the ropes of a larger company. And then after the BBC, I joined a very good friend of mine who started a company called Latch, which was a smart access and building company. And at the time, I, when I joined, we were about 20 people and a prototype. This was in 2016. And I just haven't looked back. And we went from that to 500 people, public company, three hardware products, three software products. And here I am on the podcast. Fantastic. That's a great experience <laughs> for sure. And your product on the software side, is a SaaS model? Is it a subscription model? How does it work? Yeah, I can tell you just a bit about Latch. So when I joined, we were trying to solve some fairly specific problems. We weren't in the business of just getting rid of keys, which if you look at latch.com today, you'll see a mixture of hardware and software products. The main hardware products are smart locks, and the main software products are the Latch app and Latch manager. And with that combination of hardware and software, if you live in a latch building, you can unlock your front door and your apartment door with a phone, code, or key card. And you can let in people like friends, family, and you also never miss a package. But out of all of those experiences, the main problems we wanted to solve was figuring out how to enable people to kind of share access in a much easier way. You know, one of the biggest problems back then and now is even worse is getting packages into your building. And so that was the founding kind of problem to solve. Along the way, we've solved a lot of other problems, such as getting rid of mechanical keys, as I mentioned, letting in packages, letting in friends, 
And now if you're a Latch customer, you can even take advantage of uh, features such as booking spaces in your building and things like that. So our main customer, and a lot of people ask us this, is is we're actually a B2B company. So we don't sell... You can't find us on Amazon.com. We sell to multifamily developers and operators. And the only way that you could interact with Latch is if you lived in a multifamily building, like a 10, 50, 100 unit building. And so the difference between us and a smart lock company that you may find on Amazon is that we charge a subscription per space instead of just the hardware. And so we very much think of ourselves as a software SaaS company with hardware versus a hardware company that may do a little bit of SaaS. That's a very good way to kind of summarize it because you're right. At the end of the day, you have to really make a decision if you wanted to really look at the company as a software with hardware or hardware with software, right? So there are some now, you know, good example of it might be even the new companies coming to car industry that the very new ones, the electric ones, the more modern ones, more increasingly, they look at themselves as a software and then with hardware and robotics behind them versus looking at, at themselves like old-gen kind of car companies that look at themselves as a great car company, but it's more really kind of the building than the hardware side and the software is just an auxiliary and just added to the hardware. Yeah, and I think it's pretty hard to back into SaaS if you start as a hardware company. It's definitely not impossible. And I think just the most famous example right now, the most successful example would be Apple that have kind of backed into SaaS, you know, with Apple One and the iCloud and the Apple for Business. But I mean, that's the world's most valuable company, or at least, and I believe as of today, they're, they're worth the combined value of Google and Amazon and Meta. But generally, it's pretty hard. And I think and a good example of that is a lot of the home security or home video camera companies that started with just selling hardware on Amazon and then tried to upsell consumers on subscription. And ultimately, that was just a really hard proposition. Ring is a good example that got acquired by Amazon finally. So we were always very... From the get-go, it was, we're going to do SaaS with hardware as a moat versus let's sell hardware and try and figure out how to charge people SaaS. And so that actually drove our target customer sort of identification because we started with the question, who's going to pay a software subscription? And if you start with that question, you kind of spare yourself a lot of pain down the road because you kind of, you don't need to try and figure it out later on, you know, how do I sell SaaS to a consumer? Instead, we found a customer that was very happy from day one to do that. And that is building operators, multifamily developers who are very used to purchasing subscriptions and things like that. And they're just sophisticated customers. They're able to do financial sophistication that just your average consumer can't do. So from your perspective, looking at a B2B model and looking at the selling to businesses versus going directly and selling to consumers, two characteristics, two different business models. Do you believe that even when you grow and grow and grow at one point, you may really go to both markets or from your perspective and your philosophy in business is, no, you have to pick one. You cannot really just, it's like chasing two rabbits. Never do that. Only a stick to one. Yeah. It's and the reason I'm smiling is I think it, it's both a in-joke at latch, but I also just think it's like the eternal question in sort of business models in business in general. 
I would say with us, to take Latch specifically, to start with, we already today do a bit of both. Now, what I mean by that is we certainly, 99.9% of our revenue is from B2B, but we are also a B2B to C company in the sense that our primary user is actually consumers, or let me just say residents, people who live in a latch building. So while our business engine is a very much a B2B, our product and experience engine is completely consumer. The way that you unlock your home every day when you come back from work or whatever it is, and you live in a large building is a complete consumer experience. So on that side, we do do both. Now, from a business model perspective, I do think it's challenging to do a 50-50 split where you are doing both really, really well. And I think it's not a question of, can it be done? It's a question of when. And I think for us, we always want to do one thing really well before we do the next. And I think that's kind of our perspective on consumer. And even the world's biggest companies, they kind of do one or the other really well, and then they do the other thing reasonably well. So I think it's possible. I just think as a startup, you can't really do both at the same time until you've got a certain level of maturity in one or the other. And just to be clear, again, it's like from a business perspective, again, from an experience standpoint, I think you can do both. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Because anyway, at the end of the day, even if you are B2B, at the end of the day, there's a real end user using your product. So you have to think about that experience and provide it regardless. But at the same time, if you think of it from business standpoint, you're adding a new tier, meaning that when you are working with B2B, you are adding a new kind of layer in between that they need to have the administration power. They need to be able to define some parameters and then they need to be able to also, you know, understand the user experience and all of the metrics you need to provide to them as well. Now, software, of course, is expanding everywhere. You know, in your case, you are expanding software and new technologies to controlling the lock, something that used to be a very physical thing with no engagement of software. And you had a physical key, you just go into the lock, you open the door and done. Now you are bringing a new kind of capability there with more flexibility, more automation. Definitely when you bring software and hardware together and automation and all of this intelligence, you can expand to a number of things. Now, do you see that as a kind of, as you go forward, it's part of the making everything digital and what is the impact of other things on what you do? So if in other fronts, users start to think and do more digital stuff, does it probably somehow also work with your paradigm or from your perspective, what you have experienced in this particular case, you have seen the digital making blocks digital has been pretty much by itself something that people or communities or multifamily houses or different buildings just adopted. It, it's not that much related to how much people go digital or don't, the COVID stuff that accelerated the digital kind of digitization movement and, and everything going digital faster. Do you see the connection between all of these or from that standpoint, it's just a different track? Yeah, I mean, I do think part of Latch's success has been timing that analog to digital transition that really began around the time that Latch was founded. And I think to some extent, Latch helped catalyze 
So certainly, I think one of those, one of the most important things when it came to the business and what was striking at a time when that analog to digital transition was happening and suddenly customers were willing to pay SaaS for digital tools, which just wasn't the case before. And I think just to make a weird sort of connection to my previous startup, when we started Caribou, we were a company that sort of pre-subscription. That time, subscriptions weren't so popular. It was more about in-app purchases. And so who knows, but if Latch had been started back then, perhaps subscription wouldn't have been as palatable as it was later on. So yeah, I think those two elements helped catalyze Latch. One was just a more friendly approach to subscription. And then second was the analog to digital transition that was affecting the multifamily industry, which every other industry had gone through 5, 10 years ago. But for whatever reason, in multifamily real estate, it was 5 or 10 years behind the curve. And and partially, it might be also about really the trust and also how comfortable consumers are with technology, right? So there are always doubts like security. Is it really going to work or is hackable? If I have my physical key, most people might be more comfortable, even if it's not really more secure. But the perception might be, I have the key. This is a physical lock. It's kind of, I understand how it works. From my perspective, I'm comfortable with versus I have my phone and I have this digital lock. Can I work with it? What was what would be the case if there is a problem, if someone can hack it? Or all of these things that in mind of people, they need to be comfortable first with the technology and then they trust the technology. And as we go forward and we can really create that kind of trust, then you see more adoption essentially from users. Completely right. And actually, I'm sort of having flashbacks, but when we were early days at Latch, it was we had to work really hard to reassure people about this new technology, especially residents. And everything that you mentioned was at some point probably a concern from one, two or more, more people. And so, you know, one of the things that we did reasonably early on was we rewrote all our entire privacy policy and to be in plain language. And if you go to, this is one of the things that we're especially proud of. If you go to latch.com and you go to our privacy policy, it's not a bunch of sort of legalese. It's actually written in a way that anyone can understand. And that was really, really definitely a tough battle with our lawyers, but that was really important. And the second thing we did was we wrote a security white paper, which I think now is pretty common for most companies to do, at least B2B companies. But Again, at the time, it was something we hadn't seen in the rest of the multifamily industry or prop tech industry. Really, generally speaking, it's true also about the whole cloud. If you go back to the early days of cloud, even people had some doubts if really it's going to work. Should I push my data to a cloud that is, as long as it's physically with me here on my server in that room, Maybe I feel more comfortable and secure about it. But as soon as I get the data out somewhere, I have even no idea physically where it is. And then how can I trust that security is not? So those kind of concerns that... Yeah, like the on-prem to cloud transition for businesses, I think, has brought all of these issues to light totally. Yeah, and it's hard to really even imagine today that those concerns were so serious that time. And some people never thought that that transition would happen so fast. And still, there are so many kind of cases that still people have not moved to the cloud, but it's definitely much easier now compared to the past. 
Now, you have gone through also the, we talked before this session a, a little bit about, for example, some other topics that you have gone through this company, as you said, from 20 people to growing company and going public and all of those things. What's your take on SaaS companies in order to grow? They have to, at the beginning, they need a lot of cash. They need to really build that subscription. But then as you add more subscribers, then it gets much easier because you are just adding more subscribers on top of what you already have. So the life seems to be easier in the second part that you have reached to that level and you have enough subscribers, but it seems to be more challenging from cash standpoint at the first half when you still don't have enough subscribers, but you have all of the expenses and it's not growing as fast as you want because you're asking for subscription, not a bigger amount as a perpetual kind of license. What's your take on it and what's your experience? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, my, I guess my opinion here is maybe a little more philosophical, which is that certain types of ideas and businesses just require more money and more time. And this opinion sort of kind of clashes with the whole lean startup idea, which I'm actually a big proponent of, but only for certain types of ideas and businesses. I think certain really big bets, really game-changing or world-changing ideas take a lot of money and a lot of time, and you can't necessarily sort of lean startup your way through it. And I think that, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that if you can lean startup your way to customers and, and a business, it can be pretty cost-effective. And I think especially with the amount of services and tools you can use today. I mean, if you just go on Twitter and you go to any of the thousands of threads from people starting SaaS companies with like one person, I think you can actually make a great SaaS business for yourself without even hiring anyone full-time. There's just so many amazing tools. I just came across an amazing B2B tool called WorkOS, where they deal with 2FA, SSO, enterprise security, all those things that five, 10 years ago, if you were a B2B company, you'd have to invest and build that infrastructure. So it's almost never been a better time to start a B2B SaaS business with a small amount of cash. However, and I, I use Latch as an example, but there's loads of examples, whether it's car companies, whether it's energy companies and battery companies, those kind of companies, you just need a lot of money. And especially when you're dealing with hardware. It's incredible how much harder it is to build a hardware company at the same time as building a software company. And the amount of money is something that you just cannot... There's no way around. So I guess my answer is big ideas. You need a lot of money. If it is not like hardcore infrastructure or hardcore hardware, I think you actually don't need a lot of money to get going in today's world. And I don't think it's never been a better time to start a SaaS business, in my opinion. It's actually, especially given the macroeconomic conditions, I think it's actually a great time. How come the climate today, the macro climate today can help SaaS companies in what ways? So I think on the one hand, there are headwinds that I recognize, whether it's the fact that a lot of companies are cutting down on cost. I think the reports came out yesterday or the day before that Amazon, AWS, and Google both acknowledge that a lot of their customers are doing cost cutting and hence their revenue is lower than expected. But on the flip side, I think if you are a young SaaS company or you're about to start a SaaS company, 
the labor market has never been, well, for the last five years, has never been, it's been very overheated for the last five years. So I think what you're finding now is that there's a lot more ability for small companies to hire great people that aren't necessarily going to get poached by the big four. And second is there is, depending on sort of how you, who you talk to, there's a tremendous amount of venture money. I mean, there's still more venture money than, than there was five years ago. So there's the funding and the talent. And frankly, that's kind of what you need. So in that sense, that's my optimistic take. And I think Bill Gurley wrote a great piece or an interview with McKinsey that everyone should read, which also sort of echoes that same sentiment, which is that it's never been a better time to start a company or grow one. Yeah. And also the other aspect of it is normally when these things happen, then the post era, right? So it prepares really everything for a better, more productive, probably environment after this slowdown ends. Because during the slowdown, it's just like removing some of the noise. It's like making everything healthier from business aspect. So your company starts trying to become more productive and everything is fine-tuning and working better. And then that automatically brings you to a more high productive environment afterwards and probably flourishing the businesses and everything. So that's the other aspect of it, that if someone wants to start a software business, it takes time. You better start at this time and get ready for that time when it's the right time. So that's the other aspect that might be true. Great businesses were started in 2008 and 2009. And actually what you said is echoed by a great, it's a great book, a little dense. It's called, I think, Technical, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital by an author called Karata, I believe. I may have messed that up, so I apologize. But that book talks a lot about these technological and financial cycles and how sometimes those two things kind of get dislocated and you've kind of got this overheated, mispriced market. And then after the dust settles, suddenly things kind of work more efficiently. So I totally agree with you. Now, as a SaaS company, as a founder or some founding members, starting a SaaS company, building a product, going to market, one of the hot topics is valuation. And you mentioned that when we had a quick chat before this session, and the valuation can really be a number, a multiple, but that can impact them very much because essentially not just at the beginning, it determines how much funding you can raise, but also at exit time, it rewards you very directly. Now, we have gone through a time that multiple of the revenue, the subscription revenue has gone from a number like three or four or five to 10 and then to even climb to 20. At one point, I have seen a couple of years ago, some valuation, even last year, some valuation up to 100x. So those kind of things, and now is kind of back around, depending on the company and growth and everything in a different range that is closer to kind of when COVID started. And of course, when you're adding a customer as a SaaS company, adding a new subscriber for every dollar that you are adding, you are adding a multiple of that number to your valuation. So for example, if this is a $1,000 subscription and the multiple is 10, that means you are adding $10,000 to the valuation. If it's $1 million added revenue, that means $10 million added value to your business. So your business gets more equity and value. And that's what most of the SaaS companies are about to build 
to help customers. And that vote of confidence from helping customers translates to dollar amount and revenue that adds their value. And these two are very related to each other. So based on your experience, there are pros and cons. If valuation is crazy, like 100x has some pros and cons. It's not healthy valuation, maybe in long run, even if a few people may like it and benefit from it. For the whole ecosystem, I don't think that's super healthy. And if the valuation is very, very low, it may not be super healthy because then it does not let founders to start these SaaS companies. Do you have any particular opinion developed around that area on the valuation side? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, taking the silver lining from it is that the greater focus on core business metrics like cash flow, revenue, burn multiples or burn ratios, I think generally is a good thing. And I think there's no doubt that there's been significant multiple compression for SaaS companies and well, generally across the market, but in SaaS particularly. And there's actually a great resource that's published by Altimeter Capital. They do the SaaS multiple kind of analysis. And I think the last time I checked, the sort of 10-year average enterprise value to revenue was about 7.8 or about 8, I guess. And then right now it's at about 5.5. So we're definitely under the median, I should say, not average. Those were median numbers. So 7.8 median, 5.5 median right now. So we're under the 10-year median. So with that compression, as I said, comes a little bit more due diligence on core business metrics, which I think for everyone is generally a good thing. And the other thing is that clearly companies are undervalued right now, which again, I think is on the one hand, not the best situation, but on the other hand, at least we know that hopefully it's upwards from here and we've kind of hit that kind of trough. And then lastly, I think just as I mentioned, the focus on core business metrics, one of them that I think is really great for especially early companies or startups or founding members is that burn ratio for SaaS companies. And it's a pretty simple metric, which has recently become popular just because of this sort of macroeconomic conditions, but also because of, I think it was published by David Sachs, which is effectively for every dollar that you burn, how much incremental ARR revenue did you generate? And so if it's for every dollar I burn, I get an extra dollar in ARR, not that great unless you're like a really early company. But if it's $2 or $3, clearly you've got a great company. And so one of the end results of all of this is if you've got a business that is really working great, you shouldn't worry too much about the valuation. You just kind of got to ride out the storm a little bit. So, If someone wants to start a SaaS company, and in your experience, that can be hardware, software, or it can be just software, a subscription business, You have gone through some of these experiences yourself, starting company as a co-founder and then going and joining a very com at the very earliest stage of a company as part of the very earliest stage team member and then growing that business. Uh, What is the kind of your perspective? What is your advice to that kind of person who wants to start a SaaS company? What that person needs to pay attention to? What is the mistake not to really make that can be very crucial? for the success of the business. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned sort of early on, I think you've got to be really, first of all, really honest with in whatever industry or market you're in or you're interested in, is your target customer who is willing to pay a subscription, number one. And then number two, do the unit economics make sense? 
as I sort of mentioned, for every dollar that you burn, how much do you think you're going to make in incremental ARR? And third, I would say is what are the what's the moat? What's the barriers to entry? And there's a great resource on this book called Seven Powers. But what are the business barriers to entry? Is it economies of scale? Is it network effects? Is it brand? Is it a cornered resource? Is it a certain process, manufacturing process? What is it that's going to keep that churn down? What is it that's going to keep your company competitive? And I think ultimately, that's kind of where I would probably start. So I guess if you summarize, it's if you pick the right customer, you're going to keep the churn down. If the unit economics makes sense, you're going to be profitable. And if you've built a business with high barriers to entry, you're going to have longevity. And I think those three pieces are kind of what are core to the SaaS companies that are enduring versus some of them that are more ephemeral. And that kind of characteristic that what you make is highly differentiated and the uniqueness of what you offer, I think is part of that barrier to entry parameter that you mentioned. So that's kind of inherited there. Yep, exactly. Because essentially what I understand from what you say is, first of all, what you can do very well is what dedicates to that unit economics because you can do it very well based on your experience, your team, your expertise, whatever it is that caused that that's the root reason that why you have those good unit economics because that's what you can do very well and then what you do is very valuable and that again is part of it because it's very valuable it's needed market needs it and the barrier to entry is high because essentially you are doing much better than everybody else to make that happen so i think all of those characteristics essentially are important when it goes to that point that you do very well what you do and then, and also you love doing that because that's what your passion. So if that is also aligned with the financial reward, that means market needs it. I think that's a good kind of way of looking at that Venn diagram and say you are at the center of that. So that's essentially can increase the chance of success. I would like to ask you for a book or some books that you might be, you have read it and it has had some positive impact in what you do and you would like to share it with the audience. Absolutely. I'll give you just a couple, or I'll give you three. The first one is, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of business books, but I do think the best business book I've ever read, it's a little cliche, but Crossing the Chasm by Moore, got to be the best business book that I've read recently or in the past. Second, on a more sort of macroeconomic or macro technological perspective, there's a great book called Where Is My Flying Car by Hall & Store, which is just a tremendously interesting book about technology and where we are falling short. So it's another one. And then lastly, my sort of philosophical book that I recommend to everyone is a book called On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. So if you're a Stoic fan, it's a great book. Great. Thank you very much for your recommendation, Sai. It was great having you on the podcast. Thanks, Armand. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Armand Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sascale.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. 
If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.